0: The Gubbi Gubbi are the traditional custodians of the lands we record this podcast on. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as they hold the memories, tradition and culture of this land. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. Hello and welcome to the Milkshakes for Mali podcast where people who have needed blood thank the donors who have saved, prolonged or improved their lives. My name is Kate Fisher. I'm the creator of Milkshakes for Mali and an award-winning Australian storyteller. I am on a mission to end persistent critical blood shortages in Australia and around the world. I'm inspired by our seven-year-old daughter, Mali, who started receiving life-saving blood products when she was just three. Marley will be dependent on blood donors for the rest of her life. As for her, blood products are life-saving when she relapses and life-preserving for every infusion in between. This podcast and my book, which is currently available to be ordered for pre-Christmas delivery, is the creative solution to a social problem, which is persistent critical blood shortages in Australia, as simply not enough people donate blood. One in three Aussies will need blood in their lifetime, and yet only about one in 30 eligible Australians donate it. It's my mission to change that, while thanking as many blood donors as I can reach along the way. Today is the international day for people with disability and I have just spent the afternoon sharing episodes through my Instagram feed of people who identify as having a disability that I have interviewed through the last three seasons of the podcast. Uh, Not only are we a family who has a shopping list of diagnoses between us of physical and neurodevelopmental disabilities, um, but it's also just been so important to me and to my husband, Jeff, who helps me with the pod um, to curate the milkshakes for Mali content through our socials, the podcast, and now the book, to have diversity in representation um, and visibility for people at different ages, socioeconomic backgrounds, religions, cultures, careers, um, and different abilities. The idea of that has always been that the need for blood doesn't discriminate and you never know when you or someone that you love will be in that one in three. I really encourage you also to jump over to Australian Paralympic silver medalist swimmer um, Monique Murphy's Instagram page, apart from the fact that she just shares amazing content all the time um, and she's such a joy to follow. She's an amazing advocate across a few different topics. Um, and I just love the way that she tells it how it is, um, but on her page she has shared a bunch of accounts of people that you should be following um, on Instagram to diversify your feed with people of all abilities. And now on with today's episode. Today I bring you the story of little Charlie Claude, friend to mali blood product recipient many times over beater of all the odds, knower of all the facts about all of the trains, and owner of the biggest and most joyous smile. There is no better guest that I could have for International Day of People with Disability. Charlie was born with DeGeorge's syndrome, which is a genetic disorder where a tiny piece of chromosome 22 is missing. Its presentation can vary vastly from one child to another, but it can cause heart defects, developmental delays, and or seizures. In Charlie's case, it's all of the above. Charlie has been reliant on Australian blood donors for blood products during his journey. Most recently, he needed a transfusion when his little body just couldn't fight an infection. Previously, he has needed it during enormous heart surgeries. His mum, Melissa, details his medical journey with just the right balance of pragmatism, humour and love. I've featured Charlie today because like Marley, he was born into a beautifully neurodiverse family. Some members of Charlie's family have a formal diagnosis and some just suspect that they have autism or ADHD. He's been on the edge of life quite a few times and lives with a brain injury to prove it. And excitingly, also just like Molly, he is also flanked by a gorgeous chocolate Labrador, seizure alert and autism assistance dog named Elton, who also provides emotional support for Charlie in hospital settings as Charlie suffers from PTSD from medical trauma. So many parallels to Molly. I'll open this episode with the post that Charlie's mum, Melissa, put on her socials this morning. Our gorgeous Charlie Happy International Day of Disability, little man. Your disabilities carry many labels. Some include 22 Q11.2 deletion, acquired brain injury, epilepsy, autism, severe heart defect, trachea, malasia, insufficiency, intellectual disability. At eight years old, They are some big things that you have carried, which have made you have a tough life sometimes. Disability doesn't define you though. You are strong-willed, positive, good-humoured, brave, exciting, loving, kind, and gregarious. You still adore trains and make-believe, and you can eat three ice creams and a cupcake all at once. You overcome the biggest hurdles many adults would never experience in their lives many times a year. Coming out at the other end to demand some potato and custard. You love all humans and animals. You make the funniest animal sounds. Your growling crocodile is my personal favourite at the moment. We will always celebrate that you have disabilities because they are part of you, but they don't define you. So proud to be your mum. You've changed me for the best. Melissa has such incredible wisdom. um, And I am just so grateful um, for the chat that you're about to listen to. Um, She's an incredible woman. And on this International Day of People with Disability, and thanks to the incredible Australian blood donors who have saved Charlie's life, I give you my chat with Melissa Claude. Okay, today we welcome Melissa Claude, mum to the amazing Charlie, to the Milkshakes for Marley podcast. Um, Mel, you've been part of our community for a long time now, um, but it's wonderful to have you as part of the podcast today, so welcome.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, seven and a half years, I think, or seven and a half years and a few weeks.
0: (laughs) It's been a while. Um, I certainly did not expect to be talking to you so soon. Um, A few weeks ago, your life looked Very, very different. Um, Can you paint me a picture of what it looks like with Charlie in heart failure and going in for what I believe was his ninth heart
2: surgery?
1: Yes, it was. So, um, yeah, it was was surreal, to be honest, um, only a few weeks ago. And I certainly didn't expect us to be here now. Mm. Um, We had a very sick little boy. So we actually went to Bear Cottage, which is our um, palliative respite um, and, you know, they do final care and everything else. at the hospice in, in Sydney um, to try and coordinate a number of different appointments for Charlie with his neurologist and others because he was finding life very difficult. He was a very tired little boy and a very sick little boy and we didn't know why. We actually thought it was his brain that was playing up. Um, and just by coincidence, we decided that we would um, fit in an early appointment with his cardiologist who we weren't due to see actually probably until this month um, and charlie's heart pressure in his the right side of his heart was incredibly high um, and as a result his heart was in right heart failure
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and at that point we didn't know whether that what what was actually the cause for that um, we have been warned that charlie's Lungs won't last the distance because um, they're severely they have severely malformed arteries. But um, you know, we weren't sure whether this was the time, I guess, for for um, for our family, and it was very emotional. Um, and I sort of went into his uh, first heart surgery in the last few weeks, which was a cardiac catheter, thinking that um, or being asked questions on whether or not we would maintain life support if he we went into cardiac arrest um, whether we needed ECMO which we chose not to do so we had some very big tough decisions to make um, and then sort of bleakly went into open heart surgery um, and our surgeon's a miracle worker uh, as many heart surgeons are but she for a couple more weeks unfortunately we're losing her to Texas but she's um, like a female pediatric um uh cardiothoracic surgeon which is quite rare um Mm -hmm. and she has yeah performed another miracle so you know charlie kind of came out of heart surgery for the first time ever not actually being um intubated not actually sort of having to sort of stay on life support post his surgery And then, um, as you would have seen on his Facebook group, went leaps and bounds very, very quickly to Mm -hmm. back to Charlie pre-heart failure, which is um, crazy bouncy and um, a delightful little seven and a half year old human. So, Mm -hmm.
0: yeah. It has just brought me untold joy watching your family outing (laughs) in the last week or so um, because, With Charlie's immune system and coming up to such a big surgery, I know that you had to pretty much quarantine in the lead up to his surgery because he was so fragile. And as a family, totally get how exciting it is to be able to just go and do that normal family stuff. Um, I saw photos of you guys. I think it was at Cockington Green on a train, and I know how much Charlie loves his trains and just that freedom and that joy of being able to go out on a Saturday morning, get a coffee, and do a normal family activity those things that so many other families take for granted. Um, Those moments of joy are just so special to families like ours.
1: Oh, absolutely. Even um, funny, but like uh, we took him to Coles or Woolies for grocery shopping so he could choose some of his own stuff. I think we've done that for like since pre-COVID. Yeah. Um, We've actually spent, you know, all of COVID isolating because there was a significant concern around what that would do with his um fragile little system and then Mm -hmm. we've been in and out of isolating from having multiple seizures and in and out of this and then suddenly it's like all all of that's lifted off we've got a reason and that's been you know sort of momentarily resolved he's actually home this week Mm um he's done four out of ten days of school this fortnight (laughs) which is pretty normal for him but um if home with a normal kid cold, um, and it's a pretty significant one too. I think it's adenovirus. So we'd normally get lumped in hospital for three weeks with adenovirus two or three yeah. weeks. And hey, it's just being normal kids sick, which is really nice. Mm. I mean, it's not nice to have a kid with fevers and needing Panadol and things like that, but, you know, mm. no extra support, no extra so nice hospital. It's great.
0: Manage that at home with him post-surgery. Yeah. And be doing yeah, it awesome. No- in your lounge room rather than in a resus unit like it's so different such a different experience now to what you guys would have been looking at a few months oh, ago.
1: oh absolutely and you know he recovers so much more quickly at home like we've got obviously like a lot of high care families a great deal of um, love and respect for our medical team but nothing like your own bed and your own mm. you know your own dog full-time his his dog as you know um as yours does yeah comes in for hospital visits but you know there's nothing like the looks sounds, smells and just everything at home so mm. yeah and it's, we it's, it's pretty cool go. we feel like we've won the lotto yeah <laughs>
0: sorry <laughs> We will actually get into that a little bit later in the episode about there is so many points that have been so similar and so many experiences that Charlie and Marley have had together. Um, And one of those is the support of their assistance dogs who can do seizure support, but also provide that autism assistance um, and emotional regulation for little people like ours that are so complex, have spent so much of their lives in hospital, Um, And Marley does have a formal diagnosis of PTSD from medical trauma now, Um, not surprising at all, given what she has been through. Um, But that is a big part of the reason that I've set up my child centred play therapy practice is to be able to offer play therapy to those children who have experienced that trauma, but outside a hospital setting. Um, the play therapists are so brilliant that we have had um, contact with in our time in hospital. So I went back and retrained, and that's what I'm doing up here part time now. Oh, it's that such evening. a
1: it's such a wonderful, like wonderful career. And um, mm. to be honest, some of the play therapists that we've had recently, um, our team has expanded a bit in Canberra. We've got um, a plans and navigation service now, and so there's um play therapists connected with that as well. But you know, just some of those moments where I was falling apart, Charlie was falling apart and it was play therapy that kind of really picked it up. Even during COVID, we had video conferences with our play therapists. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It it was phenomenal, but yeah, not enough in the world. So I am very glad that you're feeding. (laughs) (laughs) That's your, that's your calling. (laughs) It is, And so
0: much of it. And, you know, we saw that so much, um, particularly after our very touch and go very much coming to what we thought was the end of Marley's life a few years ago. And even the way the play therapist, I think this was the experience that really had my heart set on doing it, was being able to get her to articulate through her limited language, but some of her experiences that she had in those near-death experiences Normalize it. The play therapists were then able to communicate back that back to us and say, "This is absolutely normal for kids who are on the edge of life. This is something that we hear all the time." And being able to translate that as a family, it it's just helped us all so much. So,
1: yeah. yeah well, well we happened. initially like we initially became really sort of engaged with that whole world and OT as well at West mm-hmm. We had. Um, quite a number of heart surgeries and Charlie was very unstable for the first couple of years of his life um, mm. and was in a heart failure for most of that, had strokes and a few other things. Um, and I just remember as a parent thinking, all I want to do is feed my baby, all I want to do is cuddle him, do all of the normal stuff that you do, and yet there's all these bells and whistles and, you know, at that time drains and IV lines and things that I, I really didn't... Update they were scary. Yeah. Um, and you know, the, the team at Westmead, um, like everyone, everyone else seemed to be an organ. So it'd be like, you know, we're coming in here, we're looking at your brain, we're coming in here, yeah. we're looking at your heart, looking at your respiratory system. Like, um, you know, everyone had a very, very important job in our team, but Charlie was still a child yes. in amongst all of that and a baby and a growing baby. Yes. Um, and we had a, a wonderful, Person actually who um encouraged us to get him on the ground. Mm-hmm. So we, we sort of pulled out a play mat and um in these tiny little old fashioned style bed areas of Westmead, um opened up a mat and put all of his toys down and put some mm-hmm. paint down and got him got him pressing with paint and things I was sort of only at a few months old. Mm-hmm. Um and that sort of changed the way we did hospital as well, like looking at it and always thinking. You know, first and foremost, he's our son, he's yes. a little boy. Um, and then all these other things happen around us.
2: Mm. Um, it's it's a
1: very difficult transition to make, but very important, I think, like from going, all right, well, we're here. Um, you know, with some people in an acute setting, you see, you would, would have seen through lots of your admissions the parents that we have next to us that kind of come in and out that have like a really big... Um, emotional roller coaster because their child might have uh, bronchitis and might be suffering RSV or something but then they get better on their leave that sort of environment's okay for that sort of child two or three days but you know we're sort of sitting next to them weeks and weeks and weeks we need to actually create (laughs) yeah Yeah. we need to create childhood here Mm. or at home so Mm -hmm. you know that's been a that's always a big thing for us
2: yeah and And I think
1: there's a train coming in behind me Hey <laughs> <Some> chocolate <laughs> Oh hey. no! Um, hopefully that is chocolate because this is not chocolate. <laughs> <Can> <laughs> you I, take your time. I get back to it about. Yes. Anyway, I don't know virus. Fun times for everyone. <laughs> Fun
0: times for everyone, but hopefully. <laughs> so, how long ago did he have seizure meds? Um, in terms of like. Within the yeah. last few hours, like have they stayed in his body?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, eight o'clock were his last ones, so he's, he's doing fine. He's actually like that's been the other thing. Our seizures have been resolved recently as well. Um, we've got a new med regime. In that same, in that same um, little trip to Bear Cottage, we went and saw neuro at Ramwick, and then cut. Uh, cardiology at Westmead and um, yeah everything's kind of really good at the moment so stable days such word. so exciting <laughs> yeah that's it
2: it's
0: hard though like it's hard to so we're in the similar situation at the moment Molly's in remission she's doing really well they talk about when she relapses not if with the autoimmune sinus yeah. and yeah have these Weeks where you have a couple of really great weeks, and you just lean into being a normal family that does normal things, and you know, obviously with all the safety stuff in place and all the medications with you, and you know, the service dog and all of the things. But as normal as our life will ever be, and then we had an appointment um, with. So all three of our kids have got a rare type of genetic diabetes. Um, Had all three had an appointment with their endocrinologist, their annual follow up a couple of weeks ago. And I'm still so haunted by the look on the endocrinologist's face. He was genuinely surprised to see Marley walk into the room. And with, you saw him like, look at Marley, look at the boys and then check his notes. And he was just so surprised that she was there and that she was, yeah. and she was talking. And, you know, we were just doing HbA1c and a bit of a med check and, you know, it wasn't a big deal. And he just kept saying, you're just, you're just my miracle child. You're just my miracle child. And I was like, it just takes you back to that moment of people not expecting her to still be alive now. Um, and of course that's exactly why I do this work because without Australian blood donors, she wouldn't be. And I know that you're family. Oh,
1: absolutely. Yeah.
0: So can we take it back to um, back when you were pregnant with Charlie? Yeah. Did you have any idea um during your pregnancy of what was to come in terms of his medical complications
1: yeah so I had a really big job at the time it was a really exciting job I was um going back and forth from remote communities and organizing um the Prime Minister and his cabinet at the time to um go to um communities in um like the north of Australia um and so my pregnancy had been reasonably good. I had gestational diabetes, but it was, you know, sort of reasonably well managed. And I was just there for the um, 20 week ish um, ultrasound. And I went in um, just to our local hospital, which is down the end of our street, um, expecting everything would be just kind of, you know, um, sort of tick and flick. I think I'd almost canceled that appointment. Um, and we, Uh, you know sort of had the sort of standard ultrasound people come into the room have a look then they sort of paused and then went out and you know sort of all the standard stuff that you have when something's not going particularly right Um, and I was still being reasonably um, sort of blasé about it all I guess I was um, expected to go to the Torres Strait that afternoon um, mm. And and just kind of was like, oh, you know, you're going to give me photos at the end, <laughs> like, and I'm like ultrasound yeah. photo. And they're like, oh, we think you need to cancel, and you'll have to go over to the fetal, um, like the fetal um, medicine, the medicine, unit. medicine unit. Um, there's that was something we just can't see with your baby's heart. Um, and it all snowballed so quickly from there. Yeah. So because you're at that sort of cusp of whether or not you make certain decisions, um there is a lot of there is a lot of uh, panic in yes. the situation when things are going um, that pear-shaped I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, we were offered termination, we were offered um an amniocentesis. Um, mm-hmm. the heart condition that they were seeing, I mean basically they just Charlie didn't they couldn't find any central pulmonary arteries, so no connection mm-hmm. between his heart and lungs. Um, and had a big BSD which was a hole um, and some other um anomalies anomalies that they could see plus some strange things that they couldn't particularly understand at the time um so I did opt to have I'm one of those people that loves detail of anything um Mm -hmm. and you know that's kind of sustained us for the last seven and a half years I think but I Mm -hmm. I was keen to know what was going on um I'd made a decision that I wasn't going to uh, I was going to keep um my pregnancy and my, my my son um I'd actually he I'd almost had a miscarriage a few weeks before that oh, um and and so we'd found out that he was a little boy um at that time mm-hmm. um and he already had a name so yeah. you know it was very very connected to him even though he was only 20 weeks mm-hmm. um at the time and um yeah we so we I, I decided that we would have an amniocentesis um mm-hmm. And then the next thing was, like, we just, it, child is actually our sort of third planned child. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we, we have two beautiful older children. Yeah, because um, there is a bit of when, an age gap, isn't there?
0: There, <laughs> there is, is,
1: there is. Oh, uh, the age difference is, so um, well, our older children are um, 21 and 20 at the moment. So, um, yeah, quite, quite a big age difference, like, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so it so um, you know, I always wanted sort of our third child and it was all gonna be easy because we've got this hospital down the end of the street. But, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. that kind of, you know, that was sort of fairly different. But um Daniel and I, my husband and I had never actually ever discussed what we would do if we had, you know, this sort of complication. And um I was a bit worried about having that decision. The dog needs to come in. Hey, Elton. Sorry, I'm just gonna have Don't to I'm gonna have to go get Elton. <laughs> totally fine our latest thing I don't know if you can still hear me our latest yeah. thing is um Charlie's got the ability to open and close doors so like he's just oh. constantly letting the dog basically circle the house <laughs> so he lets Elton out Elton does a circle and then goes back to Charlie yep
0: yeah, good this is good is a game connected. <laughs>
1: yeah anyway sorry about that that's okay yeah so I'd never actually sort of had that discussion with Daniel about whether we would terminate or keep a baby but I had this kind of really strong connection and I think I fell in love with my husband all over again when we had that discussion it's like of course like he's our son you know we need to look after him and protect him um you know that was that was pretty phenomenal What we were on the same page so yeah we had I had the um the amniocentesis and that confirmed that he had a genetic condition called the syndrome um 22q 11.2 deletion which is, is sort of its technical term yeah. um and that comes with like a massive spectrum of disability um related things that you know were also equally as daunting as his heart condition so um I guess we had we we sort of went in the the biggest part of our grieving was probably that last 20 weeks of pregnancy um we had to move to Sydney before I gave birth to Charlie um to be close to a a hospital that could operate potentially as soon as, as he was born um and you know sort of upheave our kids lives too they had to go to the school at Westmead Hospital, um, you know, like things became chaotic and it felt like there was almost going to be no point, like um, right up until the day I gave birth. I mean, there was millions of appointments. It was just like this whirlwind of going between Sydney and Canberra. And, you know, my diabetes got worse and ended up being insulin dependent, probably because of part of the sort of stress of it. I was still working and finishing this massive big project that I had which was probably keeping me going emotionally um, yeah. but it was a whirlwind and mm-hmm. I guess the night before I gave birth so we're at Children's Hospital Westmead and um we did a tour of the little NICU the, the surgical NICU at Westmead um, and they said oh we'll see you in on the 10th of November Um, and it was quite a few weeks before he was born and I I said, okay, no worries. And I spoke to our cardiology team. They're like, Oh no, we haven't made any decisions yet. And sure enough, like a couple of days before the 10th of November, they're like, Oh, he's right to go now. We're going to induce you. (laughs) So, um, you know, so it's all sort of very planned based on what medical intervention needs to happen and what's available and who the surgeons are and what, what time, um, it all sort of happens. So, um, the night before they put me into, I can't remember the name of the unit, but it was a, um, it's basically a unit where they put, um, high risk pregnancies and, um, uh, early birth. So, you know, I spent the night listening to another woman wail because she was, um, dealing with the loss of her baby. Um, and I was in a a unit where there was, you know, a number of people miscarrying and, um, very sad circumstances or um, experiencing stillbirth so you know that night before felt really sort of bleak um mm. and I thought this is going to be me tomorrow night i be back here with with my baby and um actually it was completely opposite um had a beautiful birth at Children's Hospital Westmead that there seemed to be like a raft of people in the room so our kids came my husband came my sister came and then it got fuller and fuller the there's a team from the NICU. There's people coming to visit from the Westmead surgical side of things. Westmead adults and children are like a kilometre apart. There's this right. big long corridor that sort of, so, um, that sort of distances them. So the NICU is um, where they stabilise, like at the adults hospital, where they stabilise babies, and then they walk them along this long kilometre corridor to the Westmead Children's Hospital NICU, which is the surgical, um, unit, Grace. Um, different neonatal care so you know all these people just kind of kept going and machines and we you know joking the you know machine that went ping kind of came into the room um and things to warm up a baby um and Charlie was born and he um cried like a baby he looked like a baby he you know was absolutely perfect and doing all of like his Apgar scores were perfect Mm -hmm. um and it felt like this whole thing had been a complete farce. Um, and he's you know, been sort surprising of people. Wasn't <laughs> able to fall in love with this baby. And it's been like that ever since. There's been a roller coaster, But, yeah. um, you know, more, for, the, for the most part in such a good way, like people often sort of see our lives when we're in chaos and calamity. But most of our, most of Charlie's childhood has been a perfectly, you know, normal and beautiful childhood um, yeah, a few weeks after that. So, you no, know, it just, it was all like this kind of, again, a bit like now, this kind of honeymoon period. We sort of seemed a bit useless hanging around the hospital. Um, I think we had we we had the record at one point for having the most admissions to Grace, to the Centre for um, Newborn Care, because they only usually admit people once. Um, and yes. then, you know, newborns aren't newborns anymore, but Charlie kept having a little sort of, episodes of things like he'd have blue spells and um mm-hmm. he'd go from being really really good to just you know his his heart rate um skyrocketing and his saturation going down mm-hmm. um and so like all of that was um you know just um by the by we decided that with our with our medical team decided that we could go home and let Charlie grow it. so um Charlie was three weeks old we came home And we had these beautiful days. Uh, It was a summer in Canberra, which is just gorgeous, the beginning of December, um, where we just, again, sort of had some newborn time with our kids and our family. Um, And the day six of being home um, was um, we were, it was just looking a bit dusty and Mm -hmm. God was trying to breastfeed and he had an NG tube kind of in and out, but um, he just wasn't sucking properly. And again, it was one of these things where it's like, I don't know, like they said, if he's blue, present to hospital, but how blue is a blue baby? Like, you know, we're talking, he had sat, saturation between like 60 and 80. So like it's 50 shades of blue. Like, yes. you know, yes. it's really hard in reality to say, okay, well, this kids and you sort of feel like, I felt like I was always a bit of a, um, a hypochondriac or something, even sort of seeking help with Charlie. Yeah. So you know, touch and go, we sort of went to Ikea and then we decided to go to the hospital yeah. um, with Charlie. So he, he had his little Ikea trip and we went in and very casually we were trying to find where we should go. We went into the day stay, which is the number we'd been given. We didn't have a paediatrician or anything yet because we were new back. And we put his saturation monitor on his foot um, and he was saturating at 30. Oh my
2: God. Um,
1: and then... I was like no that can't be right like it must be your monitor like you new you know, the monitor yeah get a new probe the monitors here are not as good as you know they can't be as good as Westmead so we had the probe put on his other foot and then a probe put on his hand and then at that point I'd run the um heart center and said you know what do I do like we're here with um with nurses who don't know Charlie um hmm in day stay, what 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 do we do? And they said it can't be can't be that low, like try and warm him up. So everyone was trying to warm him up and do things. But um no, he was he was saturating in the 30s. So the situation again escalated really, really quickly for Charlie. He um they put some oxygen on him, um not really, I guess that, you know, doing the first aid side of things for a baby that is likely to um, likely to pass away, not really sort of Necessarily considering all of the complications of his heart, um, and that closed his airway up. And so, very quickly, we went into a very um, chaotic situation. We went up to the NICU at Canberra, he was intubated in my arms. I was still holding him, um, still holding him. I had this little uh, pram that he'd come in, in, so I had like his um, little tiny mattress that was in the pram, and I was sort of holding him with this mattress whilst they were um, intubating him. I didn't want to sort of leave him or or, or stop holding him. Um, mm-hmm. And we've got some photos very early on of, you know, all these hands on Charlie, like everyone just wanting to give him some comfort whilst these terrible things are kind of introduced to his life and he was no longer this newborn. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, like there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of dissing about, you know, regional areas that don't have major hospitals associated with them, but, when it came to him being critical and unstable, out of the sky came the Nets team. So, you know, like very quickly, we have all these professionals from Sydney um, in our room stabilising Charlie in the NICU. Um, and, you know, it took him a number of hours to stabilise him enough to be able to fly him by helicopter back to to Westmead, which was another completely bizarre situation, you know, like, I'd never, Charlie's only a few weeks old, I've never been in a helicopter. Suddenly in this helicopter flying over Canberra and I'm like, oh my gosh, there's Parliament House. This is so weird. Like, you know, life just seemed to sort of go so slowly in these sort of weird photographs whilst we headed towards um, Grace. And I don't think I knew um, until afterwards just how sick he was. Um, You know, I just had this expectation that, here was my baby and we were just transferring. you know, like we were just doing it's sort of the run of the mill things. Um, I didn't kind of react like you would expect to react in those situations. Like I wasn't frantic, mess, crying or anything like that. I just kind of, it was all very slow and still. Um, it was after that situation, I got quite a lot of PTSD because um, I didn't understand that situation. A, a few weeks later and um, uh, open heart surgery later, so um, our surgeon, first time that she operated on Charlie it was a Sunday after we'd come by helicopter and been stabilized enough um so he'd had his surgery I ran into the net's doctor in the corridor of grace and she was like you okay and I was like yeah I'm fine Charlie's doing really well he's had heart surgery and she was like oh my gosh I thought he wasn't going to make it Mm -hmm. um and and that was the reality to me then was like you thought he wasn't going to make it really like I didn't even know I didn't even know you thought that like I didn't think that um so yeah again kind of these roller coasters and and he again seemed pretty well I had a newborn baby again with me cuddling him and he started to have this little twitch in his hand um and couldn't feed properly and we sort of played that as being a newborn thing being in grace for like the umpteenth admission um t- and then he did it again in front of some doctors um and he was clearly having a seizure and that was his um the diagnosis of his first stroke so after after he'd had that first um heart surgery had a he had a small um stroke which you know set us on the path of epilepsy I guess and 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 gave us a whole new world I used to sort of say I'm glad I've got this whole heart thing nailed that was really good I'm I thought I can stay out of the brain world and then suddenly we're kind of locked into the, the brain world too and understanding, you know, how, how MRIs and EEGs and all of those tests kind of work. So, yeah, that was the first few weeks of Charlie. <laughs> there, was, there was one time where it was raining at Westmead and we had had a really dark time I think it was Charlie's had a number of strokes now probably three including the one just in his last heart surgery but there was one that took away 20 percent of the volume of his brain um and it was a watershed one due to him not having enough blood pressure during a um uh surgery and that was probably the only time where I was like out and we'd been in hospital for so long and I felt that sort of moment of um like the air outside, like people talk about being institutionalised, You've um, been inside for so long with the air conditioning and with the smells of hospital and everything else. I've gone outside and it's raining and there's air and it sort of hit me almost like a, a nausea feeling, like it wasn't a good feeling. Um, it was an overwhelming feeling. Um, I remember saying to my husband then, like, we're actually those parents. And he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, the parents that everyone feels sorry for in PQ, you know the parents that we look at and go oh my gosh like we're them like that was probably the only time where I was like we actually I actually feel like you know (laughs) it's a bit of a bit of a diabolical sandwich here we've got nowhere else to kind of nowhere lower to go really um Mm -hmm. but for the most part yeah it's um you know, it's an uncertain world, I guess.
0: I remember on Marley's first PICU admission, um, it was around the time that they were doing the gold telethon at the um, Sydney Children's Hospital in Randwick. And, you know, you've got the morning rounds or the parents have to get out of PICU. And during those rounds, they let us know that the Wiggles would be coming through as part of the gold telethon. And I had two moments. One of them was, oh, my God, Marley's going to be so excited to meet Emma Wiggle. She was intubated in an induced coma at the time. But you don't think about it in that way. In that way, yeah. And I went to get a coffee and they were running the 24-hour gold telephone thing on one of the TVs near the cafe downstairs and had that moment of looking at the telephone thinking, oh, my God, those poor families, it must be so horrible to have a critically ill child, long-term hospital stays. And realizing in that moment, it was so far removed from my identity and what I thought was for my family and going, that is our family. Like they are yeah. doing that for families like ours. Like my child is in a pediatric intensive care unit in an induced coma. She can't breathe for herself. Status epilepticus seizures are prolonged. Like this is. Us. and yeah get similar to what you're saying about walking out and that feeling of the rain I'll never forget where I was standing what I was thinking and that feeling of just having the air sucked out of your body and just going this is our reality now this is where we yeah.
1: are." yeah mm. and look for the most part I don't feel like I feel like even in the high care world um like we're a bit of an intruder you know like we're kind of an invader it's like even when we're in high care or um, you know we, we have these kind of moments that sort of remind us all the time but I, I don't feel like I feel like you know we've got to help x person like even when I was talking about the baby with bronchitis next to us I'm like oh my gosh yes They look like they really they look like they're really struggling can I get your coffee yeah. like but yeah, yeah. You know, I just don't feel mm-hmm. like we're we're the we're the ones and it it happens like um, you know, I guess in situations like uh, Charlie attends a specialised school, and when we kind of go there, and I look at him and how he copes compared to some of those other kids, and realise I oh, actually have a kind of coping less than some of these other families, or um, you know, it, uh, yeah, for me it happens a lot in the sort of special mm-hmm. needs. We we um, we go to a cycling class for um, kids with disability, and I realise then actually we're kind of. <laughs> We're pretty out there on the spectrum of, um, you know, uh, some of the the worst, the sort of harder things to kind of deal yeah. with. But, yeah. yeah, for the most part, it doesn't feel like that at all.
2: Um.
0: Part of the reason that I have come across you and become so invested in Charlie's story and what a phenomenal kid he is, and he has such a big imprint on Marley's memory as well, from the times they've only met a couple of times but the time oh, i know and they're
1: so gorgeous together i wish we could do it more often like,
0: me too <laughs> so gorgeous together but marley remembers charlie really really clearly and um you provide the most incredible support through telling your story and being so authentic in the way that you tell your story but particularly through the high care needs community within australia and um The way that you've created that community, you've offered that support and platforms for information sharing for those families as well. Um, And I just have such clear memories of our kids hanging out together and how incredible Charlie's room looked with the bed (laughs) brighteners and having all of his bits and pieces and how you would create such a sense of home and comfort within those hospital rooms And in Canberra, you organised for a lot of that stuff to be delivered to Mali as well. And I know that you've supported lots of other families through, you know, campaigns for bed brighteners at Westmead Hospital and all of that kind of thing. What do you think the impact of that is on other families? I can certainly speak to what it has been for us in terms of normalising our experience being able to access the right information that we have needed. You have really, through your own example, supported me in being able to advocate really strongly for my child, not just in terms of what her medical needs are, but also what her emotional needs are, and then being able to support her neurodiversity and all of those types of things. But the fallback of that is that we are surrounded by so many other people who we know don't get to take their children back out the front door of those hospitals. Um, And that's tricky and that makes us feel so lucky because we do get to take our kids home. But what hope do you have of that work you do in that space and the impact that has on other families with children with
2: additional needs?
1: Look, I think the main thing that... um and it comes back to that discussion that we had earlier on about play therapy and things, but, you know, having someone very early on, um, and I'll I'll name her Lynn, our OT at Westmead, um, helping me give Charlie a childhood and identity beyond, um, you know, just this kind of constant stream of hospital, like we've had over 130 hospital admissions, Made me realize I can actually do stuff with him as a baby, and then I can actually do stuff with him as a child. Um, you know, the medical profession—they—they they see little snippets of our children's life, and they—it's not for their purposes. It's—it's it's all clinical. Like, you know, um, PQ once said to us, "He's great. He's stable. He can leave now." And I was like, "But he's just had a stroke. He can't talk. He can't see. He's—he can breathe, but he can't feed. He can't. You know, there's nothing. He." is that he used to be um but clinically he was he was normal and stable then like we have to embrace and we have to hold on to our kids childhoods through this stuff um and I do see like one of the things that we did now um high care group um and I'll get get to sort of talking about how we even set up the high care group to start with. but one of the things that we did was um try and figure out nicer ways to put ng's on like um you know this tape was hurting our kids faces um having this big thick brown tape that smells mm. like i don't know how to describe how um luco smells but it smells like hospital smells it like sticky <laughs> um, on our kids faces all the time and someone was like oh i've tried this like physio tape um that's cotton and then so we tried the rock tape and it was amazing so we um managed to get rock tape to um donate a couple of rolls to a hospital which we kind of cut up into nice little bits and then um Westmead started to use it and the group started to use it and everyone's using rock tape and then there's a few other little businesses that have come along and there's other types of tapes that aren't this kind Mm -hmm. of disgusting smelly stuff that like rips Skin layers off, but mm-hmm. you know the clinical provision of that is very appropriate for a child that's going to need that type of assistance for a few weeks.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: it's not appropriate for a childhood, um, and being able to understand, I guess, that we can we can do anything with our kids because Absolutely. they're mums. Yes, like, it's it's pretty limited. in in a world that's not actually that's quite controlled for us medically. Yeah. That component's pretty libera- liberating. Absolutely. So, you know, going yeah. you pick you through after heart surgery, can you have his own pillow? Mm-hmm. Um, I remember seeing a mum that was um she she didn't have English as a first language. Um, and she came into her newborn baby, who was um a baby that required heart surgery the, the day after it was born. Um, a severe um condition called hyperplastic left heart syndrome, which a number of our friends in our in our group um share, but it's it's a rare condition. And she looked at her baby at a distance, like close closer to me than she was to this little baby. Um, and, and she stood there for a little while and then she walked away. Um, and then in the afternoon she came back for another visit. And I said to her, You can touch your baby. And she didn't understand what I was saying. I was like, touch, like go over and touch and I was showing her like on Charlie who at the time had his it had complications from his surgery so his chest was still open um so you know she could see that like I was doing stuff with him um and and she did and she melted like it was beautiful sort of seeing that moment like she was like oh thank goodness you know like but it was scary um and there's not enough people around I don't think to tell people particularly new parents or new parents to the situation you know we have um as you guys um came into the situation not mm. from, from birth but from, yes. from older there's not enough people to say "Still your kid like, yes you can still cuddle kiss you know comfort um mm. the night before charlie's surgery at nikki and I, I i am public about these things because i'm passionate about these mm. things now but the night before our um our surgery where we thought he was what well, where the nurse in hindsight told us that she thought he wasn't going to make it um I remember saying to the nurse in in grace and by then I had quite a lot of PTSD from the helicopter flight the intubation everything else yeah can, can we hold him I want to touch him I want to hold him and I'd had the unlike other newborn families who had surgery early on they would had the sort of first three weeks of being his mum. so like suddenly they'd taken him away put him all clinically and mm. you know he was intubated he had a million tubes and a, a couple of um Christmas trees full of um uh lines and things and um she was like well yes but we're gonna have to get a, a team to actually kind of set him up and if his heart rate changes or his oxygen changes, we need to take him back. So it'll only be a couple of minutes. And so i I was fine with that, but you know, equally scared by that. I didn't want to kind of make him worse. And they put his little body onto me, and it was you know sort of kangaroo care type thing, and his heart rate went down. And so I held him, um and you know, Daniel got to sort of touch and hold him as well. Um, and you know it was sort of five or ten minutes and they said and I said so you know it's been five or ten minutes like how how much longer do I have and they said his, his heart rate's gone down you can hold him like that as long as it stays down for as long as you want to and so I, I sat there for about eight hours um, until his surgery just holding him still um, and you know that's something that i felt i needed to advocate for but a lot of people are scared of doing um and we've got to get past that
0: and sometimes even if you ask the question and the answers no at least you understand why the answers no or it's not you know you might not get all of the things that you've requested but there is something similar that you can do you know even if you couldn't actually get him out and hold him you know could you put your head in next to him or yeah or do um, a little
1: bit of care like mouth care or something absolutely and there's things that parents can be involved with that just seems too foreign and too scary but actually they're so important they're as important if you're
0: not used to being involved in that medical environment
1: like I think about the
0: way that we interacted right at the start of this compared to the way that we just do it now where we just let everyone know exactly what's happening and I think you know I was only talking recently to some parents who you know have nearly had their child diagnosed with autism and I said if I go into a medical setting you know we do tend to as medical parents, I almost give handovers like nurses do, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> you know, This is Marley. She is seven. She has a beautiful neurodivergent brain. Um, she is autistic. And that means that there won't be, you know, I know that you understand that you won't do anything to her or touch her before you let her know what's happening and you will explain things to her. And we always give choice to her whenever we can. We're all on board with that. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. We'll proceed with the appointment and it's you know it then gives her permission to advocate for herself into the future um we really noticed it with our oldest uh thomas he's 12 nearly 13 now but he was 12 last year broke his leg and um in three places like we never ever do these things just nice and easy a clean break it was a spiral fracture in one bone and out screws across an ankle and whatever Um, And he was saying very similar things. When people would come into the room, he'd be like, I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm autistic. So I don't want that light on. Um, I don't like the smell of that. And can you please not touch me before you tell me? And it just made the whole thing so much smoother and so much easier for everybody because he felt like he had a sense of control in that situation. And it was a perfectly reasonable request, you know? And yeah, it's really important. I think one of the other things that has made such a big difference for us and I know that it has for you guys too is um asking for a port to be put in to our children um, oh my god
1: I love that thing like <laughs> I would marry it I just like the trauma that these kids go through and you know you're talking about permission there's sometimes where we can't give them permission and you know life or death is one of those things Mm. um but the amount of times where we've been in a situation where it's been three o'clock in the morning and I'm holding my child down not giving him permission to move when like it's not actually the pain that's hurting him being autistic it's actually the 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 holding and the you know sort of um lack of His own capacity to do something, like the Mm. amount of times that I've done that. And I just feel Mm. like I wish he was, I wish I'd known and advocated about that a lot earlier. Mm. Um, I wish that the medical profession was able to understand just how much difference it makes and embrace it. Um, I couldn't believe last time we went to Westmead, every time we needed an intervention with the port, first of all, came out of open heart surgery and the port was capped. Mm. and he had two lines in um and you know the central lines and stuff as well and they Mm. were like oh we need to take out the line like they'd used it for anesthetic but then had just like capped it off um and of course like we lost the IV lines pretty quickly um there was a a great almost kill bill scene one night where Mm. there was just kind of blood everywhere because um speaking of blood which is a (laughs) topic of conversation but like it it was just all over the place because he'd half pulled out this IV line because you know it was in his arm and he'd been thrashing about um and for me it was all about sort of education like what every every shift that was probably just one nurse in the whole of the children's hospital that could actually um utilize his port that was certified or trained in it Mm. um and you and i know like i feel certified and trained in this port already we only got it in december and i feel like i could quite happily and easily like put a line in yeah, um we things that we
0: have to do it's not a problem yeah
1: like <laughs> you know it doesn't doesn't hurt him when he's had some emilor on but yeah. um you know the amount of um uh, uh, like the the, the scared a reluctance around the port, um, I think you know it needs to change in the future because it, it is such a game changer. Um, we had you guys to look at. So Marley um, and her journey with her port was one of our greatest influences um, with deciding to get one. and an adult, an adult palliative nurse who um, is a, she was um, a nurse unit manager, she's very, very um, strong at advocating for ad, um, palliative care in Australia. Watch Charlie's surgery on the internet. Oh, sorry, watch Charlie's journey on the internet and say, How how has he had this many stabs and how come he doesn't have a port? Yeah. Um, And it was at that point we asked. um, And, you know, one sort of uh, our um, pediatrician um, was, you know, quite keen on the idea, but wasn't sure whether cardiology supported it. Cardiology was actually okay with it, um, even though no one thought they would be you know yeah. like everyone actually didn't mind this thing happening um and mm-hmm. it's, it's probably less of a risk to charlie's heart which is the biggest reason for not having a port than
2: mm-hmm. all
1: of the iv stabs that he has um mm-hmm. you know he's had two bouts of endocarditis before having the port mm-hmm. um, we haven't had anything like that since
2: mm-hmm. um
1: but yeah it's amazing i love it easy blood tests easy easy so access much better. And, and just to give so much trauma the- gone that
0: idea of choice as well, and we said that with Marley when she was quite little, she called cannulas teddies because there was always teddy stickers that were on the sticker, like the yeah, the tape on there, and special button. And she always, I don't know where special button came from, but she always called it special uh, button. We've never actually we, it.
1: We, we use it, we call it the special button or the magic button now because of you guys. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: and we could say to her before she had it accessed, what you know because we were having um, intravenous immunoglobulin infusion every 10 to 14 days for about 19 months so we'd spend three days in hospital sometimes 10 days out if we didn't have big seizures but it was being accessed all the time and we could say to her before an access you know we know that it's time to do IVIG would you like us to do teddies or special button She picked Special Button every single time, but it was giving that idea of choice, like giving her that little bit of autonomy, that little bit of power and sense of self back to her. And yeah, Special Button completely changed her life. Um, And I have seen lurking in the background at times during this conversation, a beautiful chocolate Labrador called Elton.
1: Um, He's currently lying on the ground next to me.
0: (laughs) So regular (laughs) listeners to the Milkshakes for Marley podcast will know that Marley has a seizure response, and autism assistance dog called Patty, um, who, when she was unwell and having frequent seizures, would alert to seizures sort of two to four hours before they were about to come on for her, um, giving us plenty of time to be able to give some meds to disrupt that seizure pattern. Um, So it meant that we were having seizures we could manage at home with a couple of lots of midazolam rather than having you know, 30 and 40 hours status epileptic seizures that were induced coma
2: and
1: hey Charlie <laughs> hey, hey he probably can't hear us um, tender I don't know where his tender is. Wait because Jessica I, I, I
2: mm-hmm.
1: Spencer's looking for his tender. Will you keep going and finding it and Jess will Jess will come later and find it for you, okay? Mm-hmm. Are you gonna to wave to Kate? Oh, you're out! You're out of the picture. Wave closer. I come closer. <laughs> hey, buddy. How right. are you? Um, yeah. She's saying hi. She's saying hi, Charlie. Hi, Charlie. Hey. All right, sweetheart. You go and um, try and find it for me. We're nearly done. <laughs> no, oh no, it's fine. Spencer's tender's just gone missing.
2: Oh uh, well, I need that. <laughs> I actually
0: <laughs> understand why that could be a problem That's a big deal
1: <laughs> Ellison, are
0: in are my at the moment so I everything's alicorns ah. unicorns earth ponies and pegasi and I know every single just, pony
1: it's intense for us it's like there'll be a minor role train that misses something like a tender or a um carriage and all hell will break loose until yeah, so we turn the house up. everyone's house upside down nothing else matters <laughs> totally yeah <laughs> um so to which it back
0: is to- which is great <laughs> we were talking about our children's collective beautiful chocolate labradors um yes whose, uh incredible in terms of assisting them, giving them emotional support during their hospital admissions. Um, But I know Elton is also training to be able to pick up Charlie's seizures and to let you know when he is unwell. Can you tell me the difference that Elton has made to Charlie's life and to your family?
1: Yeah, well, definitely. Again, um, with thanks to your influence um and also the influence of some of the labradors that we've seen around you know at ronald mcdonald house and um other other settings such as that Mm -hmm. um you know charlie's charlie's thrived for a very long period in a household of of pets Mm um we actually had a we've got a we've got a cat that picks up charlie's seizures uh, Mm -hmm. a a main coon that will um or when he's sick um hop up and start to pour him and um even has on occasion bitten his lip when he's been having um, apneas. Yeah. Um, and so like the idea of having an assistance dog was great. Um, in Charlie's seizure, uh, Charlie's seizure type is such that he stops breathing and requires respiratory resuscitation. So we don't use Elton. He still needs one-on-one eyes on him most of the time or like what I'm doing at the moment, I can hear him playing um if he was to go silent then i would um i would pause but um for the most part charlie uses hospital monitoring as his um seizure monitoring so he's on nighttime hospital monitoring um but i wanted to be able to um have an assistance log for charlie for a few reasons the first was that um i wanted him to be able to have that option later on in life um mm-hmm being positive about there being an adult journey for Charlie because, um, you know, whilst that's not necessarily his prognosis now, um, hospital, uh, those type of things have been proven wrong. Um, so, um, you know, sort of getting him into the understanding of how, how to work with an assistance dog. Um, mm-hmm. But then actually the, the, the real sort of underlying attraction to the whole concept was um, the assistance with, trauma um and the experience that he has from you know being in hospital um sort of over 130 admissions um has has really sort of taken its toll on um as as you sort of spoke about ptsd um being able to find a safer way to make ed and resource particularly feel like it's part of his life Yes. um it it hasn't felt like a safe space for a long time for him um mm-hmm. and um ed in canberra has actually been working really hard to try and to try and change that for us but it's it, it's still you know he's he's we're often uh, not in the pediatric part of ed we're often the adult part of ed he's experienced an adult pass away next to him he's experienced arrests, he's experienced you know all the trauma that you experience in recess. With with other people around him, so sort of being able to close his world a little bit with a with a, a dog was um, one thing, um, and and you know just having a having a buddy around. Elton popped into the scene, and um, they they sort of temperament tested him and thought that he was um, going to make a good dog, um, and you know we we knew that because as you know, dogs can't be trained to um detect seizures, they have to have an innate ability to be able to do that. You can then train Absolutely. that ability. Yeah. Um and so we knew that there was a big risk that that wasn't going to be possible because um of that. But that wasn't, you know, that wasn't our primary thing. There was other things around Charlie's um other um disabilities and things that we could um utilize a dog for. But um, yeah, Elton was home, I think he was nine weeks old. Um, and he was in Charlie's room. We, we decided to crate chain him right next to Charlie's bed. And then when he was big enough, he goes up on the bed and down on the floor um, and sleeps with Charlie. Um, and we heard this frantic barking. And um, my husband and I are in the room next to Charlie. And Daniel sort of said, what, what do we do? And I was like, well, we're supposed to ignore him when he's being a little bit naughty and just see how he goes. And then like 40 minutes or so later, Charlie had a seizure um and and that was the first time he alerted um and he's done probably about 70 or 75 percent of his seizures like um at, at the moment he's a bit of a teenage adolescent pig head and he'll be like oh no I'm too tired like hey, whatever <laughs> whatever <laughs> or he goes the other way he um Charlie had a seizure just before we went to Sydney recently um mm-hmm. and Elton um he does a couple of things during Charlie's seizure, like in addition to learning how to alert, he also um, hops over Charlie's body and applies deep pressure because Charlie jerks quite a bit and feels like he's falling when he's um, post um and so he'd done all of that he'd been the goodest boy and then the ambulance came because Charlie still wasn't stable and he was still um out of consciousness and the dog was like I'm so good I'm so good uh-huh. I've just done my job look at me I look just- at me and I'm like oh now I have to put you out and kind of punish you for yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> because you can't be near the ambos because you're so excited yeah. so he gets very excited about and then there was you know another time where he got so excited that he'd done his job properly that he actually jumped on Charlie. So, you know, we've yeah. still got some things to, we've still got some things to iron out. It takes mm-hmm. two years of decent training to, Absolutely. um, to actually, um, rear a, a proper, um, assistance dog and he's mm-hmm. only, um, 12 months this month. So, you know, we've still got another 12 months to yes. really sort of train, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. he's, he's doing very well and, it's been so lovely how supportive our hospitals actually been of, of our journeys.
0: Nine heart surgeries, hundred and thirty yes. hospital admissions. Is there Two any strokes, way, three strokes? Three strokes. <laughs> to the hard, hard Any be. way that you can put a number on the amount of times that Charlie has even needed blood products? Or that they've been the safety net for the surgeries that he has needed.
1: Um, I think it's been a few times where he's had his open heart surgeries and he's been on bypass where he's had blood products. Um, I don't don't actually know a number. That's that's really hard. Like, probably every time we go to hospital, it needs to be a, there as a backup. Um, and I think that
0: was the point know, of my question: is that yeah, people don't realise how often, even if they haven't actually needed blood products during their surgeries that the surgery couldn't be scheduled and go ahead unless they had exactly the right blood products there in that emergency situation, how often they are waiting on standby. And if the products weren't there, then they wouldn't be able to go ahead with the procedure. So yeah, um,
1: it's, it's, it's quite phenomenal. Um And just the kind of um, the thing I was actually really appreciating recently um, are the people that are, are there in that bypass environment actually operating those machines and determining do I need extra blood do I need extra plasma do I need this do I need that and then you know going out into a particular environment where they're sort of doing the same with their gas levels and stuff like it is a it needs to be there because it's part of it like oxygen and like the sort of Mm -hmm. basic life support things that we need um it yeah so like probably actually using um blood products only a few times um and i, I usually make a narrative of trying to take photos and and, and show people like this is actually what <laughs> this is yeah. actually what it's used for um, yeah. one of the times that our family used it i think i mentioned this to you a while ago charlie i i went in it was my sister was giving birth to her son um, charlie had a seizure and went into status in her birth suite and Mm -hmm. went into high care um and so there was kind of all of this kind of crazy array of people coming into my sister's um birthing suite realizing that they're there for a code call for Charlie instead um Mm -hmm. and so that sort of all happened for a bit and then he was settled and stabilized and we didn't need them for him and my sister hemorrhaged um and needed needed a transfusion so you know you never know like her her birth was um beautiful fairly calm and like you know sort of um not the crazy Westmead one that I had had necessarily and yet it Mm. was in the end like you just never know Mm. when um and you know it it can be with Charlie it was probably the most extreme scenarios when he's got his chest open um and he's in PQ and they're not sure whether they need to put him on an ECMO machine or not
2: Mm -hmm.
1: um and he needs some extra plasma because he's he's running low and um his levels are are all over the place Mm -hmm. to you could just go into hospital for something that you feel is kind of fairly run of the mill and you'll need it um you know it's it's so important um and yeah donation of all kinds of things um has has really touched our family like um even coming towards, like, sort of, uh, if you don't mind, or will give a board plug for all donation, but, um, yes. you know, organ and tissue donation has really um, been important um, to our family and friends um, in in recent times. Um, but for Charlie in particular, he had um, a heart valve, which was a sort of his first major life-saving, life-changing thing. Um, surgery where he went from um, a blue baby to a pink baby just in a couple a, a few hours um had this blue motley pale death-like skin and then he had this pink baby skin afterwards because of um the, the kind and incredibly generous donation of a, another little baby who had passed away in their family mm-hmm. um, you know it just we we rely on these we, we rely on these um, these conscious decisions that people make whether it's to go to blood bank and donate um, regularly or whether it's to um, do something as significant as determining that when the time comes when you're losing a loved one that you're making a a, a really tough decision then too like um, it means that there's people in the world that are able to keep
2: living
0: i think that's a beautiful place to end the episode thank you so much for sharing your story so candidly um i yeah as i said i've drawn so much inspiration from the way that you share the way that you support other families um, in this situation and charlie just brings me no end of joy in the way that you share those stories and i know that um he has
1: brought marley so much joy as well so oh and you you, and you guys as well like this is just great um one of our nurses actually last time we're not like why do you guys still keep in contact and i was like yeah we've got our group remember like and they're like (laughs) oh we listened to that podcast it is just so inspiring so you know like it's it's amazing people using their skills um, and strengths to be able to change the world in a little but incredibly important way, um, and you know, providing information um, about about our world and how important these things are. It, it really does yeah, make a massive I difference. Don't
0: ever want another family to have to worry about whether there is enough? Blood products during a critical blood shortage to keep their child alive, and that's the it- underlies everything that I do. Thank you so much to Melissa and to Charlie and to Elton who popped in for a little while during that chat as well. Um, I could chat to Melissa for hours and hours and hours, and she has given me such a soft place to land during some of our really confronting experiences. Um, that we have had with Mali, but also the frank and fearless advice that I have needed at times, um, which has really made me feel brave and powerful and able to advocate for Mali. Um, so I just, yeah, I just wanna thank her so much for being my friend, part of the Milkshakes for Mali community, and for being on the podcast today. Um, if after hearing us chat, you would like to become a blood donor in the future, please register your donation to the Milkshakes for Mali Lifeblood team. I love being able to track our new donors um, and also our current and frequent donors and the Australian lives that we have all saved together. This podcast was written, produced and hosted by me, Kate Fisher. Today's guests were Charlie Claude and his mum, Melissa. Audio production and welcome to country by my amazing husband, Jeff Fisher. Social media assets by Jason at Strosky Media. If you liked today's episode, please share it with a friend and make sure you are following me on Instagram and Facebook and also check out our website, milkshakesformarley.org, where you can also order a copy of my new book and have it underneath your tree before Christmas. And as always, I'll leave the final word to Marley. Thank
2: you for my plasma.